So Psalm 59, I want you to help me out with some familiar sayings. I think many of you will know these, and so they're kind of filling the blank. I'll need your help, okay? I don't get mad, I get even, okay? I'm going to give him a taste of his own. Okay, how about this last one? Revenge is a dish best served cold. Okay, so most of you know those. There's many more I could give, but... I think the fact that we have so many maxims about revenge in our country at least tells us that we live in a culture that loves revenge, don't we? I mean, we love revenge in this nation. We love our stories of revenge and our books about revenge and our movies about revenge. Macbeth, The Count of Monte Cristo, the modern day revenge stories of John Wick, we are a nation that loves revenge. And while the saying revenge is sweet might come true in the movies, in reality, in history, it tells a far more bitter story. Maybe no greater story of revenge and the bitterness that results in modern day history is the story of the nation of Rwanda. In the 1930s, the Belgians who were controlling the country divided Rwanda into two ethnic groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Now, this was an artificial distinction. It didn't exist before the Belgians kind of placed it there. And the Belgians gave advantages and opportunities to the Tutsis that were not made available for the Hutus. Now, this just introduced resentments of all kinds, as you can imagine. Division came in the political system, in the social fabric of this nation, and it became a smoldering wick for the next 60 years, even after Rwanda captured their own independence in 1962. But no one could have imagined what happened in April of 1994, when their president, the president of Rwanda, was killed in a plane crash, suddenly and without warning, a brutal cycle of revenge broke out nationwide when the Hutus began slaughtering the Tutsis. The world stood and watched, doing nothing. In 100 days, from village to village, neighborhood to neighborhood, Even church to church, uh, 800,000 Rwandans were slaughtered. 800,000 in 100 days. That's more than the entirety of the Civil War in America. See, the Rwandan genocide is a cautionary tale of the nature of revenge. It's a cautionary tale of what can happen in every human heart, given the right conditions, the right amount of pressure, and the right amount of time. We see just a hint of this in our day, in gang fights that take place, retaliation killings in our own city. We see this in crime that is committed, and fighting that breaks out in a variety of places. And while we may never lift a hand or a fist to a neighbor, we may never murder our neighbor physically. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we can murder our neighbors in our hearts. 
We can murder our coworkers and our spouses and our parents and our in-laws and our exes in our souls. See, most revenge smolders like a wick under the surface of our hearts long before it might ever come out physically. The fires are stoked every time we say, I'm going to make them pay for what they've done to me. The flames of revenge show up when we gossip and slander someone at church, when we attempt to kill a coworker's reputation, when we bully or unfollow or unfriend or shame or shun someone from school on social media. The flames of revenge burn in households through passive-aggressive behavior, silent treatment, withholding physical affection, shopping sprees, affairs, long nights at the office, all attempts to get back and make our spouse pay. And while we think we might be getting even, in reality, there is no even when it comes to revenge. The score is never settled, it is only multiplied. And every act of revenge just feeds the flames in our souls. Now, I think we all know this is true. I think you know this is intellectually true. The problem is, and you might be saying to yourself, yeah, I get it, but what do I do with these feelings in my soul? I mean, I just have this smoldering wick. I try not to think about it. And then, and then their name comes up, and I'm just like, ooh, that person... They, they should get it. And we clench our fists and we tighten our lips and you know that feeling in your heart. Don't you? I know We can be honest. I know we're in church. We feel it. I've been there. And so what do we do? Well, the Psalms give us an antidote to this because the Psalms offer us a way to come to God with our raw emotions come to him with our insecurities, come to him with our fears and doubts, and come to him with these feelings in our hearts. And we receive God's help in our time of need. Here in Psalm 59, it starts with an interesting heading. If you read it in your scriptures, it'll tell you that it's actually a musical song. Um, but then it says this, when it was written for when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And the incident that this psalm is referencing comes to us from 1 Samuel 19, the story of when King Saul was trying to kill David. Now, the reason that King Saul was trying to kill David is primarily because he was jealous. He was in a fit of rage. He was afraid that David was going to take his kingdom, and so he was out to kill him, and he was willing to use and abuse his powers as king. He uses henchmen. He spread lies. He spread slander about David. And so David began running for his life. Well, this story in Psalm, excuse me, in, in 1 Samuel 19 takes place at the beginning of all of this rage, beginning of this assassination attempt. And uh, in, in, in 1 Samuel 19, we find out that, uh, that King Saul sent henchmen to surround David's house with a plot to assassinate him at night. Now, David caught wind of this through his wife, Michael, uh, who was Saul's daughter, and warned him, and he fled for his life just in time his life was spared. But this threat against David 
This slander against David happened over the course of four years. Four years David dealt with this from Saul. And while David had several opportunities, we read about him in Scripture, to seek revenge, to exact revenge against Saul, never once does he do so. Now, how in the world did that happen? Why didn't David take revenge? He had the opportunities. Why didn't he? I mean, he was human just like us. He had the same desire burning in his heart just like us. Well, Psalm 59 sort of gives us an inside look at how through a process of inviting God into his life through prayer, he was able to extinguish these flames of revenge that were burning. And so I see, as I look through this, a pattern, or or maybe we might say four steps that David took to extinguish the flames of revenge. So that gives us a bit of an outline of where we're going to go. The first one we see, this is a short point, but I think important, is David took an honest assessment. David took an honest assessment. Notice in this psalm, David is honest with himself. He's honest with God. He's honest about what's happening to him. He names the injustice. He says in verse 1, he calls it what it is, evil doing, planning to attack him. Verse 3, conspiring against me. Verse 10, slandering me. Verse 12, lying about me. David knows the sins. He names the sins and the evil that is being done to him. And he also accurately assesses himself. He says in verse 3 and 4, for no offense of mine. I haven't done anything, Lord. I have no wrong. I've done no wrong, and yet they are ready to attack me. His conscience is clear. And we know that David took this process seriously. We know from the Psalms that he would often say, search me and try me, Lord. See if there's any wicked way in me. David was honest about what was going on in his soul, and he, his conscience was clear. Now, why is this so important? I think it's really important to assess accurately, why am I feeling this way? Did something, is something that I have in my mind that was done to me real? Did it happen the way I think it happened in my mind? Are we being honest with ourselves, honest with God? Have we accurately assessed it? And I think we, there's people that sometimes fall into one of two categories, unhealthy categories. The first one might be taking a victim mentality. They see everything done against, everything is done against them. They're always the victim. They're always the innocent one, and the other person is always the perpetrator. 100% their fault, 0% my fault. A victim mentality. They might actually not have a correct view of assessing the situation. This happens in marriage counseling quite a bit. Or it might be they're they're making this person the perpetrator, the evil person, but it's really not them. They're using them as sort of a scapegoat. So there's a victim mentality. On the other hand, there could be people that are prone to an unhealthy pattern of self-blame, of over-realized sense of responsibility for the actions of other people. Or just flat-out denial of the injustices or the abuses that they're experiencing. They always blame themselves. At the end of an argument, they're the only ones apologizing. It's always them. It's always my fault. And this is also an unhealthy pattern. And so you might not have been accurate with your lens, your view of the situation. Maybe it's because of the trauma that has happened in your life. Maybe it's unhealthy behaviors or patterns in your life or lies that people have told you growing up from a a place of authority or lies that you tell yourself. And so 
in addition to praying to to God about it, as David did, I want to encourage you to try to get an accurate assessment of the situation. When you're feeling this way, talk to someone, talk to a friend, talk to a, a small group leader, talk to a pastor, get counseling to be able to unearth what is healthy, what is real and true, and what is not. Where's misplaced blame, where's over shame, get an honest assessment. And let me just say, because I think it's a good place to say it, if you are currently in an emotionally abusive or physically abusive relationship, you need to take an honest assessment of what's going on. And maybe, just like David did when he was being surrounded in his home, he fled. Maybe that's what you need to do in your own home and take that seriously. Seek help to get an accurate assessment of the situation. This is the first thing. Secondly, we see in order to extinguish these flames of revenge burning in his heart, David surrendered control to God, and we need to as well. He surrendered control. Look throughout this psalm, we'll see that David does not rely on his own strength. He does not rely on his own power to deliver, but God's. We see in verse 1 when he says, deliver me, Lord, from my enemies. Verse 9 and 10, God, you are my strength. I watch for you, God. You are my fortress, my God, whom I can rely. God will go before me. David repeats this refrain throughout this psalm. He knows God. He knows his character. He trusts God as a deliverer, but notice he also trusts God as the just avenger. He doesn't try to take it in his own hands. He entrusts God as the just avenger. Verse 11, you, Lord, in your might, uproot them and bring them down. Verse 13, consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. I'm trusting you as the just avenger. Now, I think it's important here to see the point from this text that it's not sinful to pray for God to take vengeance. It's not a sin. David did it here. God is not against vengeance. God, God's vengeance is against sin, against injustice, and it is holy. It is a good thing about who God is. Now, I, I hear some people don't like this. I hear the sort of shallow notions from people, sometimes even Christians, as they say, you know, I like God's love and his mercy. I don't like, I don't like to think about God as wrath or God as just. I don't know if God's like that. He's good and he's loving and he's merciful. Can I just get that version of God? And I think that's a shallow perspective and a, maybe a perspective that hasn't lived, doesn't have a whole lot of lived experience potentially. Because if you actually experience significant injustice at the hands of abusive power, if you have opened your eyes to see the injustices and the atrocities that have happened throughout our country, throughout our world, throughout history, you want a God who is just. You want a God who will make sure that no one is getting away with anything. See, God is both merciful and he is a just God. See, the the idea of vengeance isn't sinful. What is sinful is when we take vengeance into our own hands. That's sinful. When we put ourselves in a place that only can and should be occupied by God himself. 
Now, why do we do that? Why do we try to take vengeance in our own hands? Well, I think we do it for two reasons. The first one is just flat out, we don't trust that God is just. We don't think he's just. See, if you, believe that God, if you don't believe that God is just, if you don't think that ultimately at the end of the age he is going to act in justice, then you will live as if you have to settle the score. You will live that as if you are the punisher. You are the judge, jury, and execution. But if you believe that God will and he does act, then you don't have to live with this feeling that you need to take it into your own hands. You can relinquish control to a good God. Do you remember in the story of Saul and David, he had an opportunity in a cave called Engedi. Some of you might know that story. It's in 1 Samuel 24. It's an interesting story. David has the opportunity to exact revenge on Saul in this cave, but instead he spares his life. And we pick up in verse 10 where he says, 1 Samuel 24, who am I, David says, to lift a hand against God's anointed? Verse 12, may God be the judge between you and me, and may God avenge me of you. God, you be my just avenger. Who, who am I to take out this vengeance? And the apostle Paul repeats this in Romans chapter 12. He says in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I think there's a good place to clarify a question that some of us are asking. You say, Nate, well, if Christians are not allowed to take revenge, does that mean that we should never pursue criminal or civil charges against someone who wrongs us, wrongs us severely? It's a good question. I think it's critical to understand the distinction between seeking justice and taking out personal vengeance. Those are not the same thing. See, while Christians are called to not harbor personal vindictiveness and allow God to be the avenger, that does not negate the importance of societal justice or the rule of law. And here's why. Because it is God who has given these authorities the institution of the state as an arm, as an extension of his justice on earth. And so pursuing legal action Criminal action within the framework of a justice system might be, depending on the situation, through prayer, through seeking wise counsel, it might be your responsible and appropriate response to ensure that justice is served, to protect the innocent, and, mind you, to deter future injustice. Now, if you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to talk email me, reach out to me, be happy to talk more about that. So why else do we sometimes take vengeance into our own hands? I think the other reason, if we're honest with ourselves, is because we think we can do it better than God. God, I mean, you're going to let this person get away with this. I have them right here. I have the opportunity. I can financially ruin them. I can get them fired. I can get them canceled. My ex-husband, I can make him pay. I can... I can take all of his money and the kids. This might be the way of the world, friends. This is not the way of Christ. See, taking upon yourself the responsibility for revenge is like putting on Gollum's ring from the Lord of the Rings. See, it's an incredible power 
but it darkens the soul of all who wear it. Better to leave judgment to the hand of God who will certainly execute justice perfectly, far better than you can. So, thirdly, how do we distinguish, extinguish the, the flames of revenge in our hearts? Doing what David did by aligning your prayers with God's prayers. Aligning your prayers with God's prayers. Why do we want revenge, friends? Why do we want it? Feels good. We want it often because of our own justification. We want it because to, to see, soothe our own anger. We want it for our own greed. We want it to deal with our own pain. What does David pray for? He doesn't pray for that. Can I show you something that kind of puzzled me this week as I was reading through David's prayer? On one hand, he says of his enemies, look at verse 5, show no mercy to these wicked traitors. Verse 13, consume them in your wrath, consume them till they are no more. And then on the other hand, verse 11, but do not kill them, Lord, our shield. You say, well, which is it? Do you want them to have mercy or do you want no mercy? Which is it? And I think the answer is very clearly, yes. Very clear. I, here's, here's a clue that, that I think is, is the answer to this puzzle. It's in the purpose statements in both verse 11 and 13. Notice in verse 11, he says, spare their life or my people will forget. And notice in verse 13, he says, consume them, then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. These are purpose statements. And here's my take, what David is doing. He's aligning his heart, he's tuning his heart to the two primary purposes of God's vengeance. Why does he use his justice? For two reasons. One, to bring repentance by the mercy of God. Sometimes God relents and does not put his full weight of justice, even though it's deserved, into a person's life. Why does he do that? Well, David says, so that people will see God's mercy, I think is what he's saying, and remember who God is, that he's a merciful God. He's a kind God. Remember what Paul says in Romans 2, 4, when he says God's kindness, his kindness leads us to repentance. And so we pray, God, do not allow the full weight of your wrath to fall in hopes that mercy might lead to a change of heart. The second reason for God's vengeance, his justice, is to bring knowledge of who he is, that he is a God of justice. See, when God brings justice down, when he brings the weight of justice, people, nations, powers, it signals that God is not a God who can be mocked. That no one's getting away from it with anything. God will be glorified. He will be glorified both in his mercy and in his judgment. And so might I encourage you to align your prayers in these purposes. And here's how you do that. Bring your real motives to God. Don't, don't even bother hiding your real motives. He knows they're there. Just tell him, God, I want to I, I do this. I want to get this guy back because I think it'll make me feel good. Just be honest. And then you say, but I know that's wrong, but I still want justice. And so pray, God, pray according to God's two purposes and start with mercy. Don't start with justice. Start with mercy. Why? Because that's where God started with you. 
Isn't that what Jesus did? What do we deserve? We deserve the full weight of his justice. What did he give us? Mercy. Mercies are new every day. He gave us mercy in Jesus Christ, who took our, the full weight of God's justice on himself so that we didn't experience it. So how can we then pray only for God's wrath? No, we must pray for God's mercy. Pray, Lord, would this person cause your merciful hand on this person to cause them to repent? But if they do not, Lord, I'm seeking justice. That's how you align your heart with God's. One of the most beautiful displays of this was seen in the aftermath of AME, Emmanuel AME Church in South, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Do you remember that story several years ago? The families of the victims offered forgiveness. One of the men who was, whose wife was killed by Dylan Roof, uh, Anthony Thompson, he told the courtroom that day and he spoke to Dylan Roof, the murderer. He said, I forgive you, son. My family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change it and change your attitude. Powerful. Can you imagine being in that courtroom? Four years later, Anthony was asked by a reporter if he ever had second thoughts. He said, I always get asked that and people want to know why, even if he did repent, why I would ever forgive the man who murdered my wife. He said, my answer is always the same. I choose to forgive the racist killer because I believe and trust God's word when he tells me that vengeance is his to repay, not mine. I need not avenge the vile deeds of Dylan Roof myself. It is, my, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says scripture, and it promises me this. I think the reason that war did not break out in South Carolina is because of people like Anthony in that day. This is how we extinguish the flames of revenge. Finally, how did David do it? He did it by choosing to praise God. He did it by choosing to praise God. Verse 16 and 17, how does he end? But I will sing of your strength. I know all of this is going on. They're trying to do terrible things to me, but I will praise, I will sing of, the, of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praises to you. God, you are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. When is it that we will truly praise God? I mean, really from the depths of our heart, it's when we go through injustice in our life. When we go through that suffering and do not respond in vengeance, we leave it to God and we find that he is still our refuge and strength. That's when we praise him. It's experiential. It comes at the end of the process of trusting the Lord. That's when praise comes to our lips. And friends, I find in my life, it's really hard to hold a grudge when I look to Jesus. When on the cross, he said to sinners like you and me, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. How can you look at the, in the face of Jesus and hold a grudge? That's what extinguishes the flames in our heart. Choose to praise him even when it's hard. 
How do we extinguish the flames? Let me just recap. Honest assessment. Make sure you understand really what's going on. Two, surrender control to God. He is the avenger, not you. Third, align your prayers with God's purposes, mercy, and justice. And fourthly, choose to praise God despite what you're facing. This is the process. Now, friends, I say process because that's exactly what it is. It is a process. Often, maybe God will, you'll pray and he just zaps you in your heart. No animosity, no bitterness, no desire for revenge, only love. Maybe he does that in your life. Probably more likely, it'll be a process with him. It'll be so you need to repeat and repeat over and over again this prayer, this psalm. You need to sing it to yourself. You need to sing the refrain of the gospel back to yourself when you're experiencing this. But little by little, I promise you, God will extinguish those flames in your heart. It starts with getting honest. Why don't we, why don't we pray? Why don't we bow and pray? Remember him right now. And maybe you're here today and Wow, if you're honest with yourselves, there is a smoldering wick of resentment or bitterness, a desire for revenge in your soul. Would you confess that to him right now? He knows it's there, just confess it anyway. Ask the Lord to come in and begin to heal that wound, that open wound that's festering as you fan the flames. Would you look to Jesus? Forgave you. Does not hold against you anything that you've ever done, past, present, or future. Completely has forgiven you. Look to Jesus. If you've never looked to Jesus before, today might be the first day you look to him as the ultimate antidote to all of our sin. Ask him to come into your life. Confess your sin to him. Ask for his forgiveness. He promises to forgive you forever because he's paid for it on the cross. Lord, we bring this to you. We ask that you would do this work in our souls. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.